But hey, if y'all haven't, uh, if I haven't met you before, my name's Daniel, uh, Daniel Purnell. I'm one of the elders here uh, at the church and have the distinct privilege and honor of kind of taking us through the conclusion of Jude. I hope you've enjoyed Jude these last three weeks, man. Pastor Nick and uh, Pastor Jeremy have done a phenomenal job kind of setting us up for the conclusion today. We've looked for the last 16 verses, I guess if you discount the first two, so really the last 14 verses, uh, at this antinomian kind of false heresy that is running rampant through the church. And we're going to try to put a bow on it, bring it back together. We're going to do a real quick kind of look at why it is so dangerous. And then there's a huge call to action for us as believers. For us as believers. If I had titled this message, which I did, uh, it would be Perseverance Today and Glory Tomorrow. So as you think through it, right, it's Perseverance Today and it's glory tomorrow. In order to get through the passage, we're going to chunk this into four different pieces. So if you're a note taker, here are kind of my four points. There is zero alliteration. I couldn't figure out how to get these all to be R words. Uh, so this is just what it is. So we have remember, we have keep, we have have mercy, and we have glory. So remember, keep, have mercy, and glory. Remember is going to be verses 17, 18, and 19. Keep is going to be verses 20 and 21. Have mercy is going to be 22 and 23. And then glory is going to be 24 and 25. we got about 55 minutes of speaking to do, so let's pray and let's get going. All right. Joy, Father, I, Lord, I do come to you humbly. Um, you know what a week this has been. Uh, and, Lord, there is absolutely nothing in me that is worthy to be on this stage. There is nothing in me that is worthy to speak or preach your words apart from the saving grace of your Son Christ and your Holy Spirit, God, that so thankfully lives in me today. So God, I pray for the hearts in this room. I pray as we go through Jude that you would speak truth that you would remove hardness, that you would reveal sin that we all live in, knowingly and unknowingly. And God, most importantly, that you would point us to your gospel, that you would point us to your son, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we all say, amen, amen. Thank you. Any Marines in the room? Once a Marine, always a Marine. Any Marines in the room? I got one, I got Carl. Any others? Any others? Carl, you remember the crucible? Did you enjoy the crucible? Does that like make you want to curl up and suck your thumb and sit in the corner somewhere? Anybody that doesn't know what the crucible is, it's the final test to be a Marine. It's a Marine recruit. 56, 58 hours of nonstop physical, mental exertion. Limited food, limited sleep, obstacles, teamwork. It's a 40-plus mile hike with a full ruck. Uh, so we're talking 50 to 70 pounds on their back the entire time. If you ever watched the video on YouTube of like the, the celebration as they cross the finish line. It's the last hundred yards, they're, they're falling. Like take two steps and they fall, take two steps and they fall. Because they've been on their feet for 56 hours straight trying to complete this final task. You think about what does it take to do that? Like what, what is it in you that you have to like call upon to be able to get from minute one to whatever 60 times 56 is, right? To whatever the final minute is of 56 hours, right? There is a massive, massive amount of grit. There's a massive amount of strength, a massive amount of commitment, and most importantly, perseverance, right? There is perseverance knowing that there is an end goal that we are driving towards, and in order to revel in that goal, in order to succeed, in order to celebrate, we have got to overcome incredibly difficult odds in order to be there. Like I said, we've already talked the last 16 verses, the last three weeks about this infiltration of false teaching that has come into the church. The church is being attacked and is being ripped apart, being torn, as we're going to see here in a little bit, from these heretics who are trying to convince others right, to live by this antinomian, to live by this no, do whatever you want to do. Right? Carpe diem, seize the day, because grace is going to cover all. 
Right? This mentality that there are no consequences because grace will cover us. So the true believers are really having to hunker down and are being called to persevere. Being called to persevere. I hope, in a weird way, that these last three weeks of looking at heresy has challenged us. I know it's challenged me. I hope it's challenged you to really step back and examine what do you believe and why do you believe it? Not from a perspective of being a deconstructionist, right? We're not trying to rip Christianity apart and then figure out the pieces that we like and then kind of put it back together in this like zombie religion, right? It's not what we're trying to do. But instead to say, man, what is it about the gospel that just indwells and lives and is me? What is it about God's word that I can't get enough of? What is it about the fellowship of believers and brothers and sisters in Christ that draws you here to a place like this every week when culture and society says what we do is a waste of time, stupid, no point, right? But you still come. I hope the last three weeks, and as we move into some calls to action this week, have really focused you on what? What is it about this gospel? What is it about a believer life that has anchored me, right? Anchored me in who I am. Again, four words I want you to remember. (laughs) Remember, keep, have mercy, and glory. Let's read. We're going to be in Jude 17 through 25. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. I feel like we could just like sing the last song we sang and just read that verse over and over and over for the next 45 minutes and that would be church. Uh, But here we go. So heresy continues to bombard us even today. But I think what we appreciate about this letter is you can read this letter from Jude and you can say, you know what? That's not a first century church problem. That's not something that only happens in the first century church. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like at work, or when I'm reading articles, or I'm watching the news, or I'm talking to friends, or you're at the coffee shop, man, I feel a little bit like Neo in the Matrix. Like, I'm like dodging bullets of heresy, right, everywhere they come at me. People accusing me of things that really aren't true, trying to convince me that their truth, right, is the truth, as opposed to recognizing an absolute truth. Heresy we are confronted with every day, right? Jesus wasn't God, Virgin birth wasn't impossible. Come on, Christians, don't you believe in science? It's impossible to get pregnant. Well, maybe not today. Who knows? Uh, virgin birth, right? Jesus swooning on the cross. Well, he didn't really die, even though they stabbed him with a spear, and even though they like ripped the flesh off his back and hung him on a, hung him on a tree all day long, he didn't really die. And somehow he was magically able to push the boulder out of the way and get out of the tomb himself. Ah, oh, Christians, you just need to be more progressive. You just need to be more tolerant. Right? Why can't you just let people live their own lives? Why do you have to be so judgy? God loves everyone and love wins. That's a heresy we hear every single day. Now the sad part about that heresy is there's truth in it in that love wins, but it's not in the way that the world wants us to think love wins. Right? Love wins in that God so loved us that he sent his son to die on a cross to save us. Right? God, love wins because God loved us so much that his son died and that blood covers our sins. 
Right? Love wins because God loves us so much that when Christ died, he imputes his righteousness on us at it, right? so that we now are seen as righteous in front of God the Father. That's how love wins. Love doesn't win just because we're supposed to tolerate people and let them do whatever they want to do. Right? That's the opposite. This deconstructionist belief that we've talked about, this idea that there are multiple paths and multiple gods, and the one that like just grates my skin today. How many of you have heard, oh, you be you? You hear that all the stinking time. You be you. Oh, just be you. You be you. Whatever your truth is, you be you. What an absolute false, ignorant, dare I say, little kids put your fingers in your ears, stupid thing to say, right? You be you. Absolute heresy. It's even infected here in the Bible Belt. The Chancellor of Mercer University, there's a quote on the board, uh, which was founded as a Baptist school in the 1800s, continues to have a school of theology and divinity today. And his book called Centering Our Souls has this quote. Again, remember, this university was founded as a Baptist school. So all you people out there that think real Christians only send their kids to private Christian schools... Maybe check that. So here we go. Uh, Jesus' death was not some cosmic drama by which Jesus was trying to appease God's wrath. Jesus didn't have to die for God's grace to be released upon a torn and crippled world. We don't have to repent or to confess. We don't have to do anything to win God's forgiveness. When the light breaks, we begin to see people, friends, and enemies as children of God's grace. What? Right, that's like the emoji where the head explodes, right? What? Jesus didn't have to die? I I don't have to confess or repent, even though Scripture says that if I confess and repent, right, that that God is faithful to forgive me? What what do you mean? What what are you talking about? When the light breaks and the sun rises and magically there's rainbows, unicorns, and sunshine everywhere, right, there's just this universalist nonsense path to God? What kind of society are we living in today that the letter of Jude continues to apply to us? So the church and the gospel of Christ is under attack from all fronts. We're going to reread Jude 17, 18, and 19. I want you to listen to a couple of things. I'm actually going to start in 16 because 17 is a transition verse. So in 16... These are grumblers, right? So thinking about the heretics, the false teachers, the infiltrators in the church. Malcontents following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Verse 17, here's the transition. But you. Now the cool thing about that word is that is you, Thomas, individually, right? That is you, individually. But it's also you, plural, as the church, but you as the church, but you as the individual, but you as the church. Must remember, there's our first word I told you about, right? Remember, remember. Beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who will cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Let's look at uh, 2 Peter 3, 2 and 3. There's a really cool kind of compliment verse here. Uh, Also, if we can get that on the board, 2 Peter 2. Ah, there we go. I can read it better on the board. Uh, That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days scoffing. You got to chuckle a little bit. That makes me feel like scoffers will scoff, haters will hate. So like Taylor Swift had a verse, this is it, right? So scoffers will come in the last days scoffing, so scoffers are going to scoff, following their own sinful desires, right? So we see Jude repeating Peter. We know that Peter was an influence, right, a mentor and an influence on Jude. So we see this repetition here, this idea that in the last time, scoffers will come or mockers will come. And when they come, they're going to scoff. They're going to mock. They are going to divide. I told you to underline the word remember because that's our first word I want you to to focus on. This call to remember 
It's not a glory days, remember back when. Hey, remember back when we used to ride our bike to the pool? Hey, remember back when when we used to go out on the fishing boats and fish all day long? That's not what Jude is saying here. What he is saying is much more, and I told you so. Hey, remember when Jesus said false teachers were going to come? They were going to infiltrate the church. They were going to divide us. They were going to be sheep. They were going to be wolves dressed as sheep. Uh, they were going to be come from within our own ranks. Hey, you remember those times? Hey, that's now. Hey, that's now. So wake up. Open your eyes. The false teachers are here now. Are here now. This is the time of fulfillment for that prophecy. Now, there are two things that we're called to remember. We just said one of them, right? Remember that the prophecy of the false teacher is upon us. The false teachers are here And the other, remember, was the the verse we just kind of made a little fun of. Uh, I mocked a verse about mocking. Uh, Was that uh, these teachers will scoff, they will divide, and they will live for themselves. They will scoff, they will divide, they will live for themselves. Let's look at Matthew 7, 15 and 16, please. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And then Acts 20, 29 and 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, from among your own ranks, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So remember, false teachers are here and they're here now. Remember, they're going to scoff, mock, divide. But what is this phrase, in the last times? What does that mean? Well, it's, it's not a second advent. Right? It's not the second coming of Christ. What they're actually referring to here is the age of the church. It is now. Right? It's from Christ's re- resurrection to now. So in the last times is in the last times of the church, of us as believers That this will occur. And we can all raise our hands and say, yes, it occurs now. It occurs now. Now, As we move into verse 18. Verse 18 is a summary of how to identify these false teachers. It's a summary of how to see these false teachers. So Jude 18. We've already said, right, they're going to scoff. Now this word scoff can be translated as mock. If you have an NIV, it probably says uh, mock is what it probably says there. Uh, And they're going to laugh at God's holiness. They're going to show no reverence whatsoever. They don't care because it's all about them. They're going to live their best life now, and their best life is doing whatever the heck they want to do, whenever they want to do it. Who cares about the consequences? That is what the scoffer is going to do. Now, step back a second, I think, because this verse also, it makes me kind of self-reflect. It makes me think, why do I mock or why do I scoff? Now, I don't think I've ever intentionally mocked or scoffed God Almighty, uh, and I hope I never do that. Uh, but man, I know I've done it to my fellow person. I know I've done it to my fellow man. And, and why do you do that? Like, why do you mock or why do you scoff? It, it's to find, it's like to feed a little bit of pride, right? It's to feed a little bit of self-justification. It's to try to make someone else feel lesser than you are so that you can elevate yourself is why we mock. It's exactly what we see these false prophets, these false teachers, these heretics doing here. They are trying to demean and to belittle and to uh, remove right, God as much as they can so that they can stand on their high horse and their pedestal And say, hey, what I'm doing is right. You can't judge me. I'm going to live my life. I am who I am. They follow their ungodly passions. They are baseless and they are godless. Now this also means that they walk according to their flesh. As we're going to see here in a couple of verses. And you you also heard when Jeremy taught uh, last week and two weeks ago. They walk to the perversion of their flesh. They follow the lust of their hearts. Passion and self-gratification are their only pursuits. That is all that the false teacher cares about. Now, as you can imagine, if that happened in this church, 
or in your family, right? You'd all sit down around the picnic table and you'd sing Kumbaya together, right? We'd all be happy. We'd all be good. If your family started mocking you or if other members of the church started mocking you, right? That's obviously, that's sarcasm. Uh, no, that would cause massive divisions, huge schisms, fractures. It would be a ripping apart of the church and of the family at its seams. And that's what we see here in the verse. Scoffers following their own, godly to pas- uh, their own god- ungodly passions who cause division in verse 19, who cause division. They are seeking to destroy the church. They are seeking to pit believer against believer. They are seeking the antithesis of what God wants his church to be. They are seeking the opposite of what unity should look like in the church. Let's look at it, Ephesians 4. We're going to read 1 through 7 and then 11 through 16. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and end all. And then jump, jump actually to 11 if you can. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways carried by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ." from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What does the real church look like? Oneness, mature, manhood, stature, no longer children, building up in love, building up in love. It's unity, it's maturity, It's togetherness. Now, as you finish verse 19, man, in order to be this brazen, like in order to walk into somewhere and just openly flaunt the fact that you don't care anything about what they say and you want them to all accept you for who you are, that's that's pretty doggone brazen. And in a church setting, what we see here is Jude says they are so brazen because they are devoid of spirit. They have no spirit. They are completely devoid of the spirit. They are worldly. They are unregenerate. They're lost. Now, if you stop and think about it, this verse, to me, felt a little comical as I was studying, kind of the back end of this verse, because we've just had 18 verses telling us, really, how wrong heresy is. All the things that are dangerous about heresy, we've just gone through. And then Jude, for one one final jab, I'm going to paraphrase, he's, he's really calling your attention. He's like, hey, in case you haven't noticed, right, these heretics, these mockers, these dividers, these worldly people, they ain't believers, right? It's this one last chance to go, wake up. Like, I've just read three-fourths of a letter to you telling you about heresy. Here it is, my final stand. They are not believers. They are animals. One of the translations for worldly there is actually animal instinct. They live by a carnal desire, spitting on God to lead you astray. As Titus would say in uh, in chapter 1, verse 6, they claim to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're complete frauds, absolute and complete frauds. They are not believers regardless of what they say. So 17, 18, and 19, remember, remember, false teachers are among us, and they are not believers. They are here to divide and here to destroy. All right, section two. Section two. So we had remember is section one. Section two is keep. You'll see that word in verse 21, even though we're going to do verse 20 and 21. The anchor word here is keep. The anchor part of the phrase is to keep. 
Now we're going to notice that, he, that Jude calls us to keep by using three other verbs that he's going to stack on top of the word keep. So keep is our anchor, and then we're going to have kind of three calls to action that are verbs. Now as we move out of these false teachers, how much better is it to know the real thing? Again, we've just spent 19 verses, well, I guess 17 verses because you can't count verse 1 and 2, but 17 verses talking about the dangers of heresy, false prophets, false teachers, and this scoffing and this mocking. Do, do you not want to know what the real thing is? Like, do you not want to know like, what, what anchors us as the real thing? Last week, Jeremy used an analogy or an example uh, where he's talking about counterfeit money, right? We in, in the States, if you pull out a dollar bill, it's got texture to it. It's got different shades of green. It's got a watermark. It may have like a magnetic strip in it, right, just to make sure that it's the real thing. Did you know uh, that the Secret Service is in charge of anti-counterfeiting? Did you guys know that as I was doing some research? And that actually falls under the Department of the Treasury. I learned some new things. Uh, and when they're studying agents who specialize in counterfeiting, you know what they study? Anybody guess what they study? They don't study counterfeit money. They only study the real thing. They only study the real thing. Now, why would you do that if you're an anti-counterfeiting? Don't you want to recognize the counterfeit bill? Well, what's the best way to recognize the counterfeit bill? Man, if you know the real thing so well that when the counterfeit bill is in front of you, you can't help but realize that's counterfeit... There's not a better way. So as believers, I think it's, good, it's really good, obviously, to understand false teachers and dangers and heresies and all the things that we need to watch out for. But what we really need to understand is the real thing, the gospel, the Holy Spirit, the believer's life, the word of the Lord. That's where we need to anchor ourselves. That's where we need to keep ourselves. And Jude here is going to give us three commands to help us, help us do that. We know the real thing because the Holy Spirit lives in us to power our works and the gospel anchors us. We're going to see that here in verses 20 and 21. Let's read those. But you, beloved, building yourselves up. There's your first verb, building. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying. Here's your second one, praying in the Holy Spirit. So if you're an underliner, building and praying. In the Holy Spirit, keep, there was my main word, keep yourselves in the love of God. And here's the final verb for this section, waiting. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads you to eternal life. So we have, we're going to keep as our anchor. We're going to build, we're going to pray, and we're going to wait. Let's talk about that. So first, building, building yourselves up in the holy faith. Really cool construction metaphor. I think we can all kind of relate to that and understand that. Uh, Jude uses this language to really call us to labor together. This is a co-laboring. This is a building effort as individuals and as the church. You guys have probably heard Brent say many, many times, we as Four Points want you to know others and we want you to be known. We want this spirit and this community of co-laboring together as believers. Now, Jeremy's not here today, so you, y'all are sitting in Jeremy's seat normally, so that's good to see Jeremy's not here, and it's really good to see you are here. Uh, but I was going to say that this is probably a good point where if I didn't plug our four points, Jeremy would throw something at me. Uh, so I'm going to plug our four points here. But I want to plug them from the perspective of co-laboring. So I'm going to put a couple of different taglines on them than we normally would use. If you want to know the real taglines, come back in January. We'll do our vision series. We'll walk you through them. We'll come to a membership class. We got you, okay? But we've got love, devotion, passion, legacy. Right, love, devotion, passion, legacy. I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. I'm going to try to do it, right? So God loves us, right? We love God. Uh, We love others. Love lives on. Those are our normal, like, taglines. Or pretty close to our normal taglines, okay? Here's my co-laboring definition, And this idea of building together. Love. We're going to worship together. We have to come together. For us as a church, there's nothing more important on a Sunday morning than the proclamation of the gospel. This is not 10 steps to be a better parent or how to manage your finances or how to be a great boss. You are not going to hear that. Unless the text specifically says that, you you will not hear that. Sunday morning is about the gospel. Because the gospel 
is all that matters. So that's love, worship together. Devotion, we're going to care for one another. Right? We're going to co-labor by caring for each other. Passion, we're going to serve together and we're going to serve each other. This idea of co-laboring, we're going to worship together, right? We're going to care for each other. We're going to serve together. And then finally, legacy. It's our covenant membership. We are truly going to lock arms and co-labor together as we spread the gospel across our community. So if Jude is calling us to build, we have to really ask ourselves, what does he want us to build on? Well, if you read the verse... He wants you to build on faith, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Now refer back to verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith. So we see this idea of faith used two different times. It was delivered to them and it is now theirs. They are to build upon this faith. Now this faith now this faith you got to ask, well what is that faith? Well it's it's the gospel. Right? It is Jesus. If you look at Ephesians 2:20, right? He is the cornerstone. Anybody in here that's in construction, I think understands the importance of leveling and squaring. Jesus is our level and Jesus is our square. He is our anchor. He is what everything is built off of. He is the only thing that is righteous, the only thing that is true, the only thing that is perfect. And that is what we're going to build off of. So our faith is the gospel. You also see another analogy in Matthew 7 where we talk about building a house on rock. Right? If you want to build a stable house that withstands the storms of life, you build on rock. And that rock again, is the gospel. Now in verse 20, the next word you see, you see praying. So we have believing as our first call to action. Our second is praying. So we're going to pray in the Holy Spirit. Jude continues to contrast true believers with false teachers. Because we just saw in verse 19, they're devoid of the Spirit. Right? False teachers have no spirit. They're not believers. Right? True believers pray in the Spirit, are full of the Spirit, are guided by the Spirit, directed by the Spirit. What makes us uniquely different as believers is the Holy Spirit lives in us and the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. You see that in Romans 8 and Galatians 4 and Ephesians 6 and you can find it other places. The Holy Spirit lives in us. As believers, we are the temple for the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit has indwelled in us. So we see the gospel. What are we building on? We see the gospel and we see the Spirit. If you want to know the real thing, the real thing, the real church, the real people, the real believers, their lives are guided and directed by the gospel and the Holy Spirit. Nothing else. Because nothing else matters. Nothing else in what we do every single day matters. If it's not built on the gospel, it's not led and guided by the Holy Spirit, it is emptiness. It is worthless. It's one of the things that I think is really cool. It's one of the great things that drew my family to Four Points when we first came here. Besides the passion of Brent speaking, besides like the first three times I left church, I left out of breath. Uh, and I basically wanted him to breathe. Like, I was like, okay, Brent, breathe. Like, I, I was exhausted by the time I left church. And, you know, I think some of you have probably been there listening to Brent preach before. Uh, but man, the next thing, that you know, his passion to the word, right? His dedication and passion to the word. But the next thing that really drew us in as we got to know Four Points was this idea that the gospel and the Holy Spirit is at the center of all that we do. Right, this Sunday morning worship without the gospel and without the Holy Spirit, right, just a big self-help session. Little, little kid, little four points, trek, Wednesday night youth, without the gospel and without the Holy Spirit, it's babysitting and hangout time. Small group, without the gospel and without the Holy Spirit, social time. Ecuador, without the gospel and without the Holy Spirit, right, it's just construction projects. Homeless ministry, without the gospel and without the Holy Spirit, it's just charity. It's the gospel and the Holy Spirit that anchors, that we build upon everything 
that we do. Everything that we do. Because everything else is in vain. So verse 21, as we get to our third verb, is waiting. Waiting is what I want you to see there. Now bear with me here for just a second. Uh, To me, this is a little bit of like a stay-in-your-lane verse, church. Okay, anybody use that phrase in their life today? It's one of my favorite phrases now at work. Like, stay in your lane, do what you're asked to do. Now, it doesn't mean that we're just going to stick our heads in the sand and we're going to ignore what else is going on in the world. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that we as the church should understand our purpose, and that is what we should drive towards. That is the only thing that we should drive towards. And that purpose is worshiping and serving God the Father and expectantly hoping and waiting for his return. Expectantly hoping and waiting for his return. Because we know Christ is coming back. The scripture and the prophecies are very clear. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's coming back to judge. He's coming back to gather his sheep. He's coming back to gather the goats. The sheep will be ushered into the kingdom of heaven. The goats will be ushered in to the lake of fire. So he is coming back. He is coming back. So Jude directs us emphatically that we are to live for God. We are to understand this call and this purpose, and we are to live for him because we are surrounded by debauchery, sin, and judgment uh, from outside forces. And we are to be the beacon. We are to be the light. We are to hold on to Jesus with all that we have. We are to flee apostasy, run away from apostasy. So we have remember and we have keep. With keep, we had building, praying, and waiting. Now we have our third section. We have have mercy. So you can underline mercy shows up three times, but have mercy is this call to action. According to the Southern Baptist Convention, the ratio of baptism to members has drastically decreased in the last 70 years. 1950, it was one baptism for every 19 members. 2004, it was one baptism for every 42 members. That's a 225% decline in baptisms within the Southern Baptist Church. God has given us a mission field, and Jude is pointing us to action. And one of the great things I love about, I don't know if John's still up there in the sound, but one of the great things I love about talking with John Wright um, is that every conversation I have with him is a gospel conversation. It don't matter. I'm fairly certain I'm saved. Like, I think, I think I'm a believer. I think I understand the word and, and my relationship and God. John don't care. Every conversation we have is about the gospel. This morning we were talking about rock, old school rock and roll worship music. And he's like, man, I was on the treadmill this week and I was listening to this song and it just wrecked me. It tore me apart. It revealed my sin and it realized, like crying on the treadmill and realized how unworthy I am before God. Like every conversation I have with the dude is the gospel. How incredibly inspiring is that? That the gospel is so evident in someone's life that every conversation they have drives back to who Christ is. And as believers, that is what Jude is calling us to do. Jesus is returning, and he's returning to gather his elect, and he's going to judge the world. It makes me think a little bit of a Tim McGraw song, any of you that are country music fans. Uh, There's a little bit of this idea of live like you were dying. Now, you could go the antinomian way, and that could be a really terrible song, right? I understand that. And that's not what we're going to do, because we spent three weeks understanding how bad antinomianism is. Instead, what I want you to think about this idea of live like you were dying is don't live it up because grace is going to cover all, there's no moral authority. Instead, live in the realization that we all, we all will stand before the Father in final judgment. As I've already said, there will be a separation of sheep and goats. And I feel like this should create a massive urgency in us, right? As believers and as a church, we should be motivated to the ends of the earth to tell any and everybody in our path about the gospel and about who Christ is and about his saving grace and about eternal life and about what we have been called and created to be and do as believers in Christ. And why don't we? Well, I won't put that on you guys. Why don't I? 
Man, I wish every conversation I had was about the gospel. I pray every day for God to give me wisdom and strength and guidance, for God to give me motivation, for God to give me courage, for God to give me favor, for God to give me an opportunity to share the gospel. But man, am I taking so much time looking for an opportunity that I'm just missing the conversation in front of me? Why does every conversation I have not point back to the gospel? Because it should. It absolutely should. So how are we to share this gospel? You see it, we are to have mercy. You see it three times in verse 21, 22, and 23. Now, mercy is the deliverance offered through Jesus Christ, right? Mercy is not giving us something that we deserve. Whereas, right, grace is giving us something we don't deserve. Mercy is not giving us something we do deserve. We are all sinners. We all deserve to die. We all deserve to be separated from Christ and God for all of eternity. But because of God's mercy, because of the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, who lived the life that we can't live, who died the death that we can't die, right? who is resurrected in perfection and in glory, who imputes us with his own righteousness. When God looks at us now as believers, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. So he gives us mercy. He gives us mercy. So how do we love the lost as we see here in the scripture? How do we love the lost? We either have mercy, verse 22. Here, I'm going to read verse uh, uh, 21, 22, 23 here. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire, and others show mercy with fear, hating the garment that is stained. So we are to have mercy that is multiplied in Christ, as we see from verse 2. And then verse 21, this mercy is received in its fullness at Jesus' return. Now in verse 22, we're instructed to share this mercy with those who doubt. So apparently there's a part of this church, and there's a part of our church, there's a part of our friend group and our work group, people who ask questions, who genuinely want to know God, but they doubt. Maybe who genuinely do know God. But now they doubt. They doubt their eternal salvation. They doubt because they've sinned. How in the world can God love me? Right? These doubts have crept in. False teachers have called some to question, to waver, to struggle with their faith. So what do we do? We love them in mercy through their doubt by speaking truth, by encouraging, by modeling, by mentoring. These are the group of people that we want to live life with that can still be turned, right? That can stand firm in their faith when they understand the truth. The second group of people you see are people who need to be snatched. How many of you as kids were ever snatched? You ever have a parent that snatched you? Man, understand, I'm right there with you, brother, right? You were doing something you weren't supposed to do, and you got snatched. You know what I'm talking about, right? Um kid running towards the road. Mama doesn't say, hey, Johnny, come back away from the road. Mama snatches that kid, right? Somebody's standing on the edge of the cliff. You're out for a college hike. You're hanging out. You're being cool. Somebody gets too close to the edge. You see the gravel start to slide. You don't stand there and go, I hope he catches that root. No. (laughs) You grab that dude and you snatch him back, right? You grab him. You snatch him. It's a very violent, forceful, quick action because They're on the precipice of death. But they are playing with fire. And that's what we see here in this second group. They are snatching from the fire because they've turned. They have turned. And they are dabbling and playing in fire. They haven't turned so much that there's not hope that they could come back. But they've definitely turned. And we as believers are called to snatch them back. Because judgment is coming But it's not too late for these brothers and sisters. There should be an urgency here of this evangelical confrontation. We have been convinced by our culture and our society that we shouldn't judge anybody. When's the last time that you knew a church that actually engaged in true church discipline for believers? In the 10 years I've been here, we have had to do that once as elders. But it's incredibly rare. 
Why is that? Why have we become so afraid of speaking truth to somebody in an evangelical confrontation? Why have we let culture convince us that that's not cool, that's not kosher, we need to let right, you be you? Right, well, whatever, whatever Norton does, Norton's going to do. I don't care, right? Um, why, why, why have we succumbed to that apathy and that lack of care? When in mercy, I can still snatch him back and I can say, brother, I need you to listen, right? Or sister, I need you to listen. The path you are on is a path of destruction and a path of death. So snatch them back with intentional, redemptive act of love. We can't let fellow believers openly sin, march to their own destruction, and possibly dragging others with them, which is what we see in the next descriptor here. The next one is show mercy or have mercy with fear, as you look at the next verse, with fear. Now why should we have fear? Because even the garment that they wear is stained. These are individuals who have so far gone down the path of heresy that everything about them is covered in their stain. The word stain there actually means excrement, human excrement. So figuratively and literally, figuratively and literally everything about them is covered right, in the excrement of their sin. So as believers, there's a caution here. Now it doesn't say, hey, believer, let them go their way and let them burn in hell. It doesn't say that. It says, have mercy with fear, right? With not, with understanding, with purpose. We're still gonna pray intentionally. We're still gonna speak truth, but we're gonna be cautious and not get too close. Because if you get too close, they drag you down with them. They drag you down with them, and you have to be aware, and you have to be knowledgeable of that danger. It makes us quickly examine a lie of Satan, that we must live like the lost in order to reach the lost. How foolish and stupid is that? God, I've used that word three times a day. I hope there's not a bunch of little kids in here. I'm sorry. So, um, Right? The exact opposite is our call as believers. We don't live like the lost to reach the lost. We live like believers to reach the lost. We live different, separate, sanctified, called apart lives to reach the lost. We live as Christ. We are light. We pray without ceasing. And we guard ourselves in the fear, the knowledge, the understanding of the Lord. So this brings us to our final reference to glory. Brings us to glory. Let's read these final two verses, 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, the monotheo, our Savior, our Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. We bookend this letter Jude turns us back to his original focus, back to God, back to salvation, back to security and eternal salvation. Now, that security cannot be lost. There is no work that can undo it. It is completely dependent on God. Will you put the, uh, the eternal security slide up for me, please? As you look through Scripture, I know as a young believer, one of the things that I struggled with, I mean, I grew up in a Baptist church, right? So you like walk down the aisle and you do the whole profession of faith thing. I, I probably did that like 20 times as a young believer, right? Because uh, I just didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know until I knew, right? And then, that, and then the time that God changed me, it was evident. But there's security in Scripture. If you're a young believer in the room, if you're an older believer in the room, your eternal salvation is secure. No one can snatch you out of God's hand, nor any other creative thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is Jesus Christ. In Him you are sealed. He is able to save completely. He will never leave you or forsake you. You may know that you have eternal life. 
So Jude is his name, not John. Jude opens his letter by reminding us that we are kept for Jesus. He closes this letter with eternal security. Not only are we kept for Jesus, but through him we are kept from stumbling and we are made blameless. The word keep here is a little different than when we saw it earlier. Here it's to guard and it's to protect. So Jesus has redeemed us. He has made us new creations. He has given us a new heart of faith. He will preserve us. We are blameless, as we have already said, because of Jesus' righteousness. There's nothing of myself that is worthy. Everything about me is blame. But because of Jesus' death and his blood, he imputes his righteousness on us. And it is through Christ alone that we are able to stand in the presence of God. Think about the wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. There is great joy, as you see here in this verse, right? There is glory with great joy at the end of 24. Revelation 19, the wedding supper, and we see that there are four shouts of hallelujah as the bride is prepared and the bridegroom for their wedding supper with Christ, as the church and the Christ come together. And then verse 25. We can take our eternal security to the bank Yes, we can do it because of the verses, but more importantly, most importantly, we can take our eternal security to the bank because of the person and the character of God. Because God himself has said, no one will snatch you from my hand. God himself is the only God. He is the Savior. He has glory. He has majesty. He has dominion. He has authority. His presence is forevermore from past to present to tomorrow. So believer in the room, there's a call here to persevere today. There's a call for expectant glory tomorrow. And to do that, remember, keep, have mercy, and glory. Let's pray. Father, dear God, I thank you for today, Lord. I thank you for being in this room. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for your son, Christ, who has died on the cross to save us. Lord God, as we leave this place, let us take the charge, Lord. Let us stand in the gap. God, let us with mercy and love speak truth to be light to this dying world. It's in your name I pray. Amen.